Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, February 15th. On today's show, we continue to play catch up with everything that's happening on the ATP and WTA tours. It's another intriguing week on the calendar. We have a couple of 500 level events on the women's side. The actions happening in Doha, pound for pound, maybe the most loaded draw we have across the board this week in the pro tennis world. Of course, we also have a fascinating 500 level event in Rotterdam. We're trying to figure out what the power rankings look like moving forward. Who are the biggest contenders to the seemingly invincible Novak Djokovic at this point? It feels like Rotterdam might offer us some insight into that question. Of course, you also have some pecking order events a little bit further down the line. Certainly the 250 events in Delray, in in Buenos Aires going to catch tennis fans' eyes as well. On this show, we're going to chat about all the action at each of these four tour-level events. And if we're going to try and tackle a task so monumental, you know I'm bringing in the big gun for today's show. A man it's been far too long since we've had on this podcast. And a man who's giving us his Michael Jordan flu game on today's episode. Of course, you know him best as an editorial producer for all things Tennis Channel, Tennis.com. It is a essentially a co-host of the Mini Break Podcast at this point, our dearest friend, David Kane. David, welcome back to the show. You having fun with this February tennis? Uh, Gruskin, it hurts to laugh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going through a bit of an Australian Open hangover, but I've been enjoying some of the lower stakes, quote unquote, tournaments that have been playing out over the next couple of weeks, although I feel like the roller coaster is already starting to tick back up towards Indian Wells and Miami. And I'm going to be in Miami for those who are listening. Mm. But um, yeah, it's going to be a crazy March. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have a sort of stable February. It feels like we're having a bit of a couple bit of a couple good weeks. Yeah, no doubt about that. I mean, last week you had five tour level events, right? The Middle East gets off in a star in a fascinating, I should say, fashion with Belinda Bencic delivering my WTA roster for this year. Another victory as I continue to just pulverize you in each of our draft competitions. But no, I mean, it, there are four events on the calendar this week. To your point, yes, it's steady, but there are plenty of matchups, plenty of storylines to follow. And Big picture, because again, right now on the women's side, one of the biggest storylines, of course, Iga's points defense begins. She has all those 37 consecutive victories starting right now on her record to defend you. Also, of course, on the men's side, have a couple of players who are in danger of falling out of that top tier. Right now, Daniil Medvedev is dangerously low in the rankings by his standards. He's not the top five guy he's been pretty consecutively for the past three years. Similarly, how real were the runs we saw from guys like Felix, like Runa to end last season as they try to secure their spots in the top 10? That's the theme of this month of February to me. It's that it's a pecking order month. It does feel like these next few weeks, maybe we'll have some organization heading into that sunshine swing. I'm sorry, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, I mean, look, this is, it's not even a question. I'm leaving this in. This is how you know it's the flu game. It's just like, when I look at this month of February, I'm trying to figure out who's who. Like, I'm trying to figure out who's number six, who's number 12. Like, I don't have a lot of clarity. It feels like right now we just have like a bunch of, we have two groups. We have, you know, on the men's side, Djokovic, you want to throw Alcaraz in there. 
You want to throw a healthy Nadal in there. I don't think you can put Medvedev in that group right now, but maybe that's your three on the men's side. On the women's side, you certainly have Iga. With Sabalenka start to the season, she has to be there. If you want to say Rabakina, Benchich, tier one and a half, we can have that discussion separately. But like beyond Iga Sabalenka, Djokovic, Nadal, and we'll see even with Alcaraz, it's just like blah. I just I don't know what the pecking order is, and that what to me is what this month is about. For sure. I was having a conversation with a colleague about the WTA top 10 and feeling like we're still, we haven't quite seen the shift that seems to already be happening over the last Mm -hmm. eight weeks because of the sort of uh, backloading of the WTA finals, Guadalajara points. It feels like things haven't really taken the shape that we think they're going to, which is obviously a lot of, you know, um, asterisks there because it, it has to still actually happen. It's just what we think is going to happen based on what has happened over the first couple of weeks of the season. And it it does feel like you go down pretty far in the rankings to count out maybe your top five uh, Grand Slam contenders on the women's side. You obviously look at Iga and Arena, you know, Jabor, Bencic, but then it feels like there's a bit of a drop-off. You look at Samsonova, perhaps Azarenka has started to really uh, solidify herself as as a consistent top 15, top 10 contender, although she did take a, a brutal loss to Bencic today. And it you know, you look at even a Jung Shui, a Donna Vekic, it just feels like we're starting to see those names coagulate, but it's not this, we're still not seeing the, the kind of top 10 mm-hmm. wall that I think we're, it feels like if, if we were to power rank them, it would, it, we would have maybe a, a steady stable of 10 players, but it's, they're still spread out right now, at least on the women's side and the men's side is, it continues to be Novak and the Seven Dwarves. I mean, it's really not <laughs> this... Obviously, we're waiting for Alcaraz to come back. I continue to be impressed by the, you know, steady consistency of a Holger Runa, obviously. Or you know, next- Sinner, who wins another title last week. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure, for sure. Um, obviously, you know, just come still. It's a lot of recency bias, I think, with Holger Runa and, and obviously with, with Alcaraz as well, because they how they performed, you know, at the end of last year. We're looking at them to repeat it in 2023. But yeah, it's it's a it's strange. It's it's February is always a strange month in tennis mm-hmm. because it's smack in the middle of two huge swings. And you kind of look for some, you know, either justification of what just happened or some foreshadowing of what's to come. And it's hard to necessarily isolate that in the moment. So it feels like maybe in a couple of weeks, we'll be able to look back on this and say, okay, this is, this really made sense. or this was the start of something new. Mm -hmm. And to that point, let's start on the women's side of things, because we have the one event this week at the tour level, the 500 action in Doha. And, you know, we've already reached the quarterfinal round of things. I apologize to listeners for not diving deep into, you know, Sonia Kennan's three and one win over Samsonova, even if there was a little bit of a hangover from for Samsonova from the week prior. Still, there were plenty of juicy round one matchups that we're not going to cover today. But to your point, big picture, who are the names right now that you feel confident saying is a top 10 player? The name I want to start with is a name, of course, that gets thrown around consistently. And let's be abundantly clear. She's still 18 years old. This is not the best version, we will see, of Coco Goff. That said, I was doing the numbers for the last 52 weeks, David, because I felt like I owed you an update coming on the show here today. There are nine players right now who rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. Only five rank top 20. Coco Goff is now one of those five players. And Coco Goff, who's currently sitting at number six in the live rankings, she gets a pretty good win uh, in her first match. Three and six over Petra Kvitova through in straight sets. The thing I continue to see from Goff uh, here to start this season, and I thought we saw it 
pretty consistently in Australia up to obviously her getting knocked out by Ostapenko. The forehand does look better. She looks a little stronger. She looks a little quicker. And, you know, outside of just the forehand, it's how aggressively she's moving forward. Like, she played Kvitova even on the first strike. She didn't get broken against Petra on these Doha courts that I think are a little slower, a little grittier. And I've just been impressed with what I've seen from Goff to start this year. I think she is solidifying her place in that top 10. It's tough because I feel like the questions that I still have about golf can sort of only be answered at the biggest tournaments. And, okay. and we look at a, at a matchup against Petra Kvitova, it's it's either a good win or not uh, or a so-so win, depending on which Petra Kvitova shows up to court. But that said, yes, golf's forehand does look better, but it sort of reminds me of the um, the artistic improvements that certain figure skaters will make. And they'll say they have improved, <laughs> but not enough, you know, so, and it's sort of this, this moving of the goalposts, like, but I improved the shot, but not enough that we need, you know, not the way we needed to. So with, with Coco, I mean, for her, her bread and butter needs to be just building up a lot of consistency, a lot of wins to build up that head of steam. I think that's really what's going to carry. She's a momentum player, in my opinion, someone who's going to really ride that wave into another perhaps big result. But I want to see it. I want to see another big result. I feel like it's been kind of a while since we've seen her go really deep, impressively at a slam in a way that was like, wow, you know, the, the, it feels like the way that she's exited the last mate, last several major tournaments have been sort of narrative blunts. But I mean, of course, again, she's only 15, which is feels like she's aging slower than the rest of us somehow. Sure. <laughs> when you look back on how she was like, I guess, 14 and uh, uh, when she made her debut with, on the WT a couple of years ago. But yeah, I mean, it's this was it's one of those, you know, talk about good win, bad loss. It's one of those wins that she kind of has to get based on where Petra is in her career and where Coco aims to go. This is a match she kind of needed to figure out. And it's sort of the same thing for for Benchich later in the day against Azarenka, one of those matches where it wouldn't be terrible if she lost them. But it's if you to win it, it would really be something that continues to propel her forward as one of those top contenders to win big tournaments. We talked about pecking order match, Doha this week, 16 of the top 20 players, 21 of the top 26 in the Doha draw, whether it be main draw or qualifying, which by the way, Boshkova knocked out in qualifying of this event. She's 26 in the live rankings right Please now. Please give a play qualifying, former world yeah, number one. Absolutely. Former it's champion just, here. It speaks to the fact, and we see this at every 500 level event, whether it be here, Doha, San Diego, Guadalajara, um, what Berlin, I think it is on, on the grass courts. Like there's just, it's always jam packed at these big events because everyone is still young. Everyone is still trying to solidify their spots. And to your point, you talk about needing to get the win. You're right, but she got it. And it was how well she protected that first serve. Again, winning 73% of those points. She constantly had Pliskova on the one run. She's just confident in asserting her weapons. That's been the theme here early in the season. And I think that's the next step that needs to be taken. Of course, we mentioned it earlier. We should talk about Owen Waniga, who I don't want to say it was a disappointing Australian Open because, again, in a vacuum, you watched her 4-4 four and four match, her loss to Rabakina. I think it said more about Rabakina than it did about Iga. But what does Iga do to bounce back? Doesn't face a break point. 0-1 victory. The first set was like 17 minutes. I mean, again, if you she came out aggressive. She came out moving well. Again, I mentioned I think these courts in Doha are a little bit grittier, and it's just like you see the athleticism on display. I— I know it's only been two weeks, 
I'm really fond of her sliding backhand. I think it's one of, if not the most gorgeous shot maybe we have in women's tennis right now. And it was just nice to be like, oh, it's back. It's been missed. Um, it was a nice start for Ego. Where are, what do you want to see from her? Like, Is it title or bust or do you just need to see a good run? Yeah, I definitely want to see more than just this match because okay. a scoreline like this makes I agree. me think this was more about Danielle than Iga. And, and that's a testament to maybe the the recession of Svantec's dominance sort of in the last couple sure. of months where now I'm not as impressed by us. I don't immediately assume that a 6061 match is, wow, that was, you know, a testament to just how well Iga played. And obviously she played very well, served very well and converted five of seven break points, you know, was really, really aggressive on the big points and and, and played well when she needed to. But I, I, I question still where we're at with her. I don't know if this is the data point that would make me think, okay, this is, I mean, we're already seeing headlines. Like, are we seeing another streak? Is this going to, you know, <laughs> is she going to go on another streak after this match? And she very well could. I mean, listen, she has very few weaknesses, but I, I think for her, you want to see, you kind of do want to see a dominant week from her. Like if she were to lose in the semis to mm-hmm. her winner opponent. of golf or Kudermatova. Yeah, if she were to lose to, to Kudermatova or took off, that would – I mean, I, I kind of don't see that happening now that you say it. I'm really um, – to your point, just not to interrupt you, but I'm really sad that Bencic withdrew. And you can understand why, again, Belinda Bencic coming off of a week last week where, what, she beat – as uh, she beat Samsonova, Haddad, Maya, Rogers, and Kostyuk. This week already wins over Tomova and then the three-set th- – you know, again, really fun match. Two hours, 42 minutes against Azarenka. You can understand why there's not a ton left in the tank for her playing six matches in eight days. And, you know, for Bencic, 14-2 and two start to the year. I'm not doing the victory lap yet, DK. I'm not no, doing no. it yet. But I'm just saying the reason I yeah, – but that was a mini victory lap. The reason I bring it up is to say, like, I agree with you. I think Iga needs more matches here this year. Like, I just – I don't know what the form is because it was up and down during United Cup. And you're like, okay, first event, whatever. It was such a stark contrast in the test she faced in rounds two and three compared to what she got from Rabakin in round four of the Australian Open that I still don't know what, like, the floor level of 2023 Iga is. And, you know, again, Collins was so far behind the baseline so quickly in the match, it was just over before it began. And I would have loved to see her get three, four matches here this weekend, at least three, right? And now to get three, she has to make the final. And it's just like... I agree with you. That's that's the downside is I feel like she needs a few more matches. Yeah. I mean, first of all, on Benchich, I'm of two minds of this this okay. withdrawal. On one hand, I did really want to see her play, you know, a meaningful opponent. I feel like she's been racking up a lot of these wins, and I've been kind of skeptical of to what end this takes Benchich. So on one hand, I wanted to see it, but on the other hand, again, you go back to figure skating, you know, selective hmm. scheduling. Here we go. Maybe you don't, you know, push yeah. yourself to play someone who just dropped one game against Collins, who's, you know, effectively the most dominant player on your tour. And maybe you don't want your momentum blunted by, you know, a really bad loss that would shake up your confidence. You think, you know what, I'll save this for Indian Wells, Miami, maybe when I'm feeling a bit more confident and we'll see where Ega is in a month. So I think there's, I mean, to say that she withdrew from due to fatigue, understandable, given the amount of matches that she for played. Sure. The fact that she didn't, you know, cite an explicit injury is a little, you know, you don't typically hear fatigue as a, as a, the primary reason for withdrawing. So strange. But then again, back to Iga, looking at this draw, you asked if it was title or bust and looking at it again, it kind of does feel like it needs to be title or bust for based on who is left in the draw. It, the only storyline where I see her losing and it not being about Iga necessarily is if we're, if Caroline Garcia were to catch fire and to hit her off the court. I mean, see- to look at. But I'm going to disagree with you a little bit because six or seven of the top eight seeds are still alive. And like Benchich is out, so six of the top eight. But 
Goff, Kudermatova. Right now, Goff, again, six in the rankings. Kudermatova's at 11. You have Sakari Garcia, Sakari seven, Garcia obviously at five. Pagula Haddad Maya, Pagula who escapes with a three set win over Ostapenko. Haddad Maya who beats Kasakina to get to this round. I don't think that's that big of an upset, if one at all. Haddad Maya, you know, the lowest ranked player in these quarterfinals, she's sitting at a lowly 12 in the live rankings. It gets back to the theme. Big dogs are out here, DK. This is a now become, I know it's only a 500, but they're all going to get shots at each other. Yeah, but the difference between, you know, this is that in 2022, Iga was the only big dog and there was such a huge gap between her and the top eight that for her to suddenly start losing to the top eight at all, much less consistently, you know, based on how now we're starting to add up United Cup, Australian Open this, you know. Maybe we're starting to see the gap close a bit between Iga and the field. I mean, she has created, I mean, and you know, it's a good problem to have, I suppose. She created such a wide gap that anything short of a dominant week seems like a disappointment at this point. But, but looking at specifically who's left, there really aren't the kinds of players. There isn't that Sabalenka style, Rebekina style power where you think, okay, Garcia? No, no, I said Garcia is the only one for me. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Garcia were to catch fire, but if she gets out, you know, outgutted by a Sakari, first of all, in a final. Or Pagula again. Pause for laughter. Yeah, or Pagula again. Or even <laughs> pause Hadad for Maya. laughter. Hold on. That was the pause for laughter. That was, was good. I needed it at first, and that no was funny. No disrespect to Sakari, yeah. but I mean, it does feel like we, there was a very was mean but not untrue video no, that was posted on YouTube. It was, that, it was a good joke. Compiled I, all one of Maria Sakari's championship point singular. Yep. <laughs> Rough. <laughs> Yeah, given your flu game, I'm going to acknowledge the joke, but carry on. Yeah, yeah, but all of which to say, yeah, it's we still don't have it feels like we don't have that much info on Shvantec still, and we're not going to get it because we're one match shy of what we would have gotten. But if she's to beat, you know, continue to dominate Goff and or Kudamertova, beats one of Sakari Garcia, Hadamaya Pagula in the final, feels like, you know, she's you know, marching through the Middle East swing in good shape. She's, I think, gaining points still. Like she's, mm-hmm. we're still not at a point where she's losing points yet. So she's got that to look forward to. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, the the best thing for her is that she's, you know, in good shape as far as we know. No injuries, is very consistent and has few technical weaknesses. So that's mm-hmm. going to immediately put her in great stead ahead of any match. And the fee, it'll be up to the field to really take it to her. And based on this field, I'm, I'm dubious that that's going to be the case. Well, bottom half of the draw, let's run through it. Sakari coming off of a semifinal in Linz where she drops a three-setter to Martic. She gets uh, some wins here this week over Jung Chin Wen, who obviously pulled off the tweener of the year. And then the straight set went over Alexandrova afterwards. She's going to take on Caroline Garcia. Garcia 3-0 and in that career head-to-head. She got a nice three-set win over Caroline, uh, Carolina Mukova in her first match. Then you have Haddad Maya, wins over Bedosa, Kasakina. It's a battle of physicality. She wins them both. She's going to take on Pagula, 4-1 down in the third. She escapes 7-5 over Ostapenko. Of those four names, Sakari Garcia, Haddad Maya Pagula, who do you want to see, or who, in your opinion, needs to make the final the most? Well, first of all, just a note on Jung Chin Wen. I feel like if you hit the shot of the year but lose the match, <laughs> yeah. you should maybe believe you should maybe lose points for that. Like it feels like it's very I'm personally very annoyed, but we're starting to see. A bit of a worrying pattern, I think, with Jung Chin Wen with some of these Ooh. big matches, you know, I like loses this to Sakari in three sets, lost in three sets to Samsonova last week. It feels like some of these tighter matches 
she's getting into them, but she's not winning a ton of them. So Can I give something- you a counter? She's a really raw 20. It's like she's 20, which, again, like compared to Goff and some of the other people who have had such teenage success, it makes sense. She's still – this will be her first full season of tour-level action, and I like that she's getting the big swings and getting the losses out now. That would be the glass half-full spin. That's true. I believe she was still playing juniors when Goff was playing her first U.S. Open. Correct, So there yes. is – even though they're of diff, you know, disparate ages, Chin Wen uh, – Younger on the growth In terms curve. of development, yeah is, yeah, is a bit behind. So, I mean – just something to know we're, nope, we're, fair, we're in fair. the summertime and this is starting to really creep up. I mean, who do I think would be the, who, who needs to make this final of the four, mm-hmm. of the, the four in the bottom half? I mean, I guess it would have to be Sakari, right? Yeah. I mean, she's gotta, she's gotta get herself in another final and perhaps, you know, put herself in position to win a second WT, uh, uh, title. I mean, looking at the, um, the field in Linz last week, it felt like, okay, well, surely it feels like whenever she's in a smaller tournament, it's almost like she should stop playing those because, She's not getting any closer to winning the title there, and at least when she's losing at the bigger tournaments, well, she's at the bigger tournaments. But to be at these two fifties and to not take the, to not take it home again, you know, I kudos to her for you know rocking back up to Doha, playing consistent tennis, finding herself another quarterfinal. She's giving herself opportunities, but after a while, you, one does hit a wall, and then you do start to re- you can only hit that disappointment so many times before you start to regress. And so I worry for her long term, but. You know, she's been able to keep it up so far. So I guess it's not it's not time to worry yet. It'll be an interesting match against Sakari. Also would be cool to see uh, how Pagula could do, obviously, in light of her um, really moving, um, stirring tribute to her mother and the mm-hmm. Players' Tribune to, you know, dedicated the win of Rostopenko today to her mom, I think with some light prodding from, from Andy Taylor uh, during the Encore interview. But I mean, for her to, she and Goff were two big question marks heading into this season based on how they ended 2022. So for her to make the, you know, Australian Open quarterfinals again to make another big WTA 1000 final really would continue to solidify her as a consistent top five player because I think she's one that is still very much a question mark in that respect. And if she can continue to, you know, hit her uh, minimums, you know, her technical minimums here, uh, that puts her in really good stead heading into the, you know, the sunshine swing where again, hard courts playing in front of a home crowd. You know, maybe a second WT thousand uh, title for for Pagula, which you wouldn't have expected. Yeah, Pagula has quarterfinals to defend everywhere on her on her uh, ranking from last season, and so yeah, every event, every look, you know, getting a, to a quarterfinal here matters for her. To the Sakari note, my favorite stat in all of tennis: Maria Sakari right now, seven consecutive seasons, her first serve win percentage has gotten better. It was fifty nine point two percent back in twenty sixteen. Again, small sample size of matches, 69.6% right now to start this season. She's number 10 in hold percentage on the WTA Tour as I plug my computer in. Um, well, what are her stats in semis and finals? She's not one of those players. I feel like you could take the average because her problems are so specific. Well, no, so that's it. It's just like incrementally, it gets a little bit better every season. Mm. The return of serve, the, the, the additional weapons, making points more freely. It's just the little things. It really is. But is that a testament to her just playing more effective opening rounds? You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, playing a lot of matches. She plays a ton of matches. You're absolutely right. I mean, you look at the numbers of last year. She played 63 last year, 58 the year before that, 54 in 2019. She even hit the 31 mark in 2020. It's pretty impressive given it was three months of play. Um, No, you're right. Like, again, I agree with you. She's the one who it would be the most significant for – for Caroline Garcia, she's still playing free ball until June, and like she'll take the quarterfinals. She is not going to fall out of the top ten until Cincinnati at the earliest. Um, and so again, she's already a winner. 
Hadad Maya, same thing. It's it's all gravy. Pagula would be the most feel-good story. Of course, we're thinking about her. Sakari needs it most. Give me a pick. Who's winning Doha? Oh, I, I guess I have to pick Iga. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it's still she's still very much, in my opinion, far and away the best player, uh, certainly of this field. And if she doesn't win, it does start to, you know, some question marks probably start to even come into her own head. I mean, because she was so far ahead and she's someone who is smart enough to know how far ahead she was. And she's probably going to feel the crunch more than maybe someone who's perhaps more delusional. I think she's very much aware and self-aware of herself and her situation as she advances on the tour. And so if she starts to feel that crunch, how will that impact the rest of her game? Because she's not someone who, for all of, for all of her lack of weaknesses, she's not someone with crazy, I'm going to rely on my big serve to get me out of these, these nervous situations. I'm going to rely on my, my huge forehand. I mean, she's someone who's very much relying on the fact that she's a complete, consistent player who plays to a very high level. And if that starts to get chipped away at, do we start to see things really start to spiral out of control? I, I ask you. <laughs> I ask you, my dear audience. It's very fair. Last note on the women's side right now, top 10, 15, 20, 25 clubs uh, heading into this Middle East stretch. And for what it's worth, once we're done with the Sunshine Swing, I'll go from last 52 weeks to 2023 results only. But for now, over the last 52 weeks, top 10 in both hold and break percentage, just Iga Shviantek, top 15, Pagula and Halep. And it makes sense that Pagula is now in that elite category. It does feel like to some extent Halep is her spirit animal, like the new generation version of Simona Halep. Uh, top 20 club, Coco Golf. Marie Boshkova, who, of course, a lot of those are from lower-level successes last year. Then I extended it to the top 26 because I had to include one player. You have Vekic, you have Jabur, you have Alexandrova, and then Arena Sabalenka ranks 26th in break percentage, and it just didn't feel right to not have her in this group. And So, again, those are your nine right now, top 26 in both hold and break percentage. Feels about right. Vekic, Alexandrova, get hot. Boshkova has been rising up the rankings. The other six names have, you know, Iga, Pagula, Halep, Goff, Shabur, Sabalenka. Obviously not in that order, but that feels like your top six. Yeah, I mean, for Sabalenka, it's unfortunate that her 52 weeks includes a pretty brutal 15 to 20 weeks. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's, it's she has five more weeks where her number are going to look bad. And then we'll hit Stuttgart, and then it's going to look amazing. It's going to turn around. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's – I mean, I'm <sighs> – excited slash terrified to see her back on court again. Like, I just, I don't know how, what we're going to see from her. Is she going to come back feeling so um, unburdened by the pressures sure. of having to win her first time that she just runs the table? Or is she going to treat us to that very familiar WTA post first slam lump, uh, lull or slump? I, I a slump. Lump is a lull <laughs> slash slump. A, lull, yeah. a lump. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was, it was, I was feeling a bit of a lump, but um. So in, in a way, I'm kind of happy she didn't rush back and, you know, rush back to a tournament like Doha, draw someone like, you know, Bedosa in the first round and lose and be all and, and get all nervous about it. So I'm glad she's taking her time, but I'm still I feel like it's going to be a, a really, really brutal 72 hours between when she gets her first opponent, when she gets on her court and what happens and the fallout of that. But I mean, I would like to see her to continue because she's, in my opinion, very much the number two. I mean, she is number two, but she's very much the, a very close number two, closer than 10,000 to 6,000 points would suggest if she's playing the Australian open forum through the rest of the season. Took us 27 minutes. We finally got to Sabalenka. Great job by us. Thank God. (laughs) It was a a boring 26 minutes before then. (laughs) 
Let's move over to the men's side of things now. We'll start with the other 500-level event on the calendar in Rotterdam and sticking with this theme of pecking order. I look at this event. I'm fascinated by a couple of things. I think first and foremost, the place I have to start is with the trio of Stefano Tsitsipas, Daniil Medvedev, and Alexander Zverev. Now, Zverev knocked out uh, in the round of 16 here in Rotterdam. He gets beaten uh, by Talon Griekspoor in three sets. You know, again, that's really all that as it relates to Zverev in terms of him still working his way back from injury. But I want to talk about those three more broadly because I think for the first time in their history – and and the reason those three are bunched together is they were the three original faces of the next-gen ATP crew, Zverev making the U.S. Open final. Obviously, Tsitsipas doesn't roll on Garros. Medvedev wins the damn thing at the U.S. Open. They were always the three front runners. And right now, obviously, Zverev coming back from injury. Medvedev falling down the rankings. Now, he's still pretty decent spot, big picture, but he's number 11 right now in the live rankings. That's the lowest he's been in quite some time. And then you have Stefano Tsitsipas, who's currently sitting at number three in the world. He's coming off of an Australian Open final. He's the number one seed at this event. Here's the the big picture question. Right now, I feel like for the first time, DK, Stefano Tsitsipas is in the lead amongst those three. Like of that peer group, he's the front runner right now. And I just think that's a fascinating spot that we find ourselves in now, that that's where things now sit. And, you know, for Medvedev, who struggled at first against Davidovich Fokina, looked really frustrated at times in that first round match, ultimately found his way to victory. Like, he's got to get that swagger back. He's got to start earning some victories, right? Because it's been a couple of months now. And, Again, he can reverse things with a big February, with a good sunshine swing. A sunshine swing, though, where he hasn't been that exceptional over the course of his history. Like, this is a big stretch for Medvedev, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, because I think we had this conversation even when Medvedev was playing really well, is that he's somewhat limited, it seems, by surface, by conditions. Yes, he's great on hard courts, but it seems only certain hard courts. You know, I think he doesn't really love the conditions in Indian Wells. I don't think he really loves them either in Miami. And then obviously the clay court season, we don't know whether he'll be able to play on grass. And it starts to become a very short season for for Daniel Medvedev. And especially now that he didn't gain the points that you thought he would have gained in Australia, we don't know how much he'll gain in February. And then the summer, he obviously doesn't have that much to defend after what happened last year. I mean, to talk about Tsitsipas relative to his colleagues, I mean, it really does feel like, you know, it was a race and, uh-huh. you know, they all kind of ran into wet cement and Sitsipas managed to stay in the lane that is not <laughs> in that way compromised. I mean, because I have to be honest, I'm still not very impressed. I feel like I'm not impressed. I just feel like Sitsipas hasn't had a really wow result to me. You know, yes, he made the final at the Australian Open lost sort of predictably to Novak Djokovic in a way that sort of showed Djokovic's continued mental ascendancy over Tsitsipas. And that's really what you wanted to, that was sort of the test, in my opinion, that sort of, you wanted to see the development that Tsitsipas had made mentally against the best players in the world on the game's biggest stages. And for me, didn't happen. But yes, he's far head and shoulders above his cohort, um, the question is, does that matter anymore? I mean, we'll get a first answer to that question, I guess, tomorrow when he takes on Yannick Sinner, you know, because I think now it's becoming less about his 
the guys ranked or the guys who are aged similar to him so much as the guys who are maybe maybe a little bit younger than him and how does he handle that on top of being sort of the I guess elder statesman now of this of this field and how does he handle that so I mean yes he's he's the best one right now but it doesn't really feel like it's it it speaks less necessarily to his improvements more to just sort of the collapse from from everybody else around him which is particularly Medvedev who seemed far and away ready to be I mean he was number he was the number one player in the world fairly convincingly this time last year I mean and it just has been since he lost that match in the final to Nadal it just has not been the same and he doesn't really seem to know why things aren't working out he doesn't really necessarily have a plan to fix it so you sort of feel like he's floundering I mean we, we were talking about the WTA post slam lull I mean it feels like this is much worse I feel like the, the women by now have typically rounded back into form after about a year of this so it's we're 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 heading into some some dangerous territory for him so I don't know where he heads but otherwise um obviously Rotterdam is the tournament to uh, be looking at because it's it's got all of them and uh-huh. or, or who's left of them I should say um so it's definitely going to be an, an I feel like this week is going to answer hopefully answer a few questions if not create some more well, absolutely. And you look in his career, Medvedev, 6-5 and five overall at Indian Wells, has never made it past the round of 16, all losses to players ranked outside the top 10. 9-4 and four in his career at Miami, never made it past the quarterfinal round. It's 8-4 and four in his career at Rotterdam. He's made the semifinals 2019, quarterfinals 2018. But like, yeah, the sunshine swing is not a portion of the calendar where he has shined. He needs to. He needs to, if he wants to get it's back. 2,000 points. Yeah, that's exactly. If he wants to get back into the top 10, and, you know, again, you look for him in his next match, he's going to take on Botik Vandesen, Schkulp, who you don't, you know, again, that's the JV version almost of Daniil Medvedev, the funky forehands, great backhands, can do all different sorts of things. It's a very winnable match for Medvedev. And, you know, looking at his side of the draw, he gets through that. Then he potentially plays Felix. And, you know, sitting on that other side of the draw, a Dimitrov who on the right week still looks fine, Cressy, Demonauer. The point is Medvedev, you know, will view himself as the favorite to advance through this event uh, to the final. I don't know if that's the case because you look at his section of the draw, obviously Felix, who gets a good first-round win uh, in his first match over Sanego, what do you go, like 18-2 and two in indoor hard courts to end last season? Something crazy like that. And so you're right. Like, that's a real test. And to your point, and we've said this before, it's just the jury's out. People know how to play Medvedev now. You take advantage of his return positioning. You have to be willing to serve and volley. You have to hit through the court, force him to come up with the spectacular. You pressure him long enough and match his physicality. He'll get a little trigger happy. The unforced errors will begin to compile, and it's still a little bit difficult for that forehand to rip through a court. The best of the best now, the Felixes, to your point, the Sinners, the Alcarazes, the Runas, they can match his physicality now. And, you know, not only does he have to worry about them, but then now his own cohort has caught up as well. Tsitsipas, Rublev, and Berrettinis of the world, like, they're playing him pretty evenly over this past stretch as well. It's a big moment for Daniil Medvedev. Indoor hardcore's a place he used to shine, like, He's got to do it, uh, and and again, he's got the draw to get to the quarterfinals. Now you look in this match, uh, this 
tournament. Felix Ogier-Aliassime obviously still alive here as well. You've got Yannick Sinner who comes over from winning a title last week. He beats Bonzi uh, three sets first round. He's now going to take on Tsitsipas Sinner unseated in this event. That's a crazy thing to say out loud. And right now Yannick Sinner, even after his title, still sitting at 13 in the world. He wins a title this week. He still wouldn't pass Hubi Hercots for the number 10 spot. The fact that Yannick Sinner isn't top 10 to me is madness because he's one of the eight guys on the ATP Tour to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. ELO ratings have him third overall, trailing just Djokovic and Tsitsipas right now. He's actually passed Alcaraz in that overall ELO rating. He didn't make it past many quarterfinals last year, but like I still think it's funny. You always say Alcaraz Runa. I go Alcaraz Sinner, and like then I think Runa comes in the conversation. That's always how I lump that group together. A lot, of, a lot of names to keep an eye on at this event. We did the Medvedev talk. Who else are you looking at most closely? I mean, the Runa Sinner comparison is interesting because I just, the reason why I think I, I swerve towards Holger, it's funny because they both had sort of disappointing five set losses mm-hmm. at a slam in the last 12 months. But where, you know, Runa sort of had his sort of late, late stage breakdown, you know, bad luck in the tiebreaker. You know, Sinner gets out two sets against Djokovic and, Djokovic, who was still not, you know, back necessarily to his best, best form. It was really only after he won Wimbledon that he really started to round back into the one that the player that we know him to be and didn't figure out a way to win those three sets. I I don't know. I just feel like Sinner continues to hit a wall, whereas Holger Rune is maybe perhaps crazy enough to like ram his head right through the wall. Like, I think that's maybe yeah. be the difference right now. Maybe that's I just, just sort of the arrogance of his being slightly younger. I just don't know if I agree because, again, you look for Sinner who right now, you know, Yannick Sinner coming off of the title last week, he goes five sets with Tsitsipas in Australia. He has match point on Alcaraz at the U.S. Open. You mentioned the five-setter with Djokovic at Wimbledon. He's going through the requisite losses that so frequently the great ones go through before you get the big one. And when I watch him play, I just see it. I do. Yeah, but was Alcaraz a requisite loss? I feel like at that point those are two equals. Well, no, I agree. It's equals. Mm -hmm. And he was just on the wrong end of it. And I think next time he's going to – like, again, I think he's there next time. Listen, he's very technically very talented, has a lot of natural firepower. There's no reason necessarily why, but you start to wonder again why someone continues to hit the wall multiple times. And the difference is that you see someone like Holger Runa managed to win a Masters against Djokovic in a final. I mean, that really in a field where that is such a premium and so few guys can claim to do, even if it is, you know, an end of year Masters final, which I think a lot of times Paris is often looked at as the ironically enough, redheaded stepchild of the <laughs> ATP tour. Um, I think people give, and, and certainly I give Runa a lot of points for that. And the fact that he's managed to turn around and be very consistent to start this season uh, makes me think that perhaps, at least in the short term, we might see more success from Rune than Sinner. But, you know, Sinner is very much the tortoise in this, um, in many of these analogies, whether it's against sure. Alcaraz or Rune, it feels like long-term, perhaps he will be the one to win the most slams, me the most successful. Um but it's going to require him to shake off a lot of hard knocks. But this is, again, one more test for Sinner. If he can beat Sitsipas, who didn't look perfect against Rusevori in the first round. So, you know, and, and best of three, you start to really, this is one of those matches where you really want to see him really push, if not win. Because he's gotten, like you said, he's gotten very close. I don't know how impressive it is to get close anymore. You want to see him start winning these matches and then potentially be in a quarterfinal against the Stan Wawrinka, who whatever stage of broke down he is, although he's had a really good week this week. Um, but at his age, again, you would think center would have the advantage there. Um, 
I forgot what your question was. Ultimately, no, I just went off on this that, tangent the comparing the two of them. That but was, yeah. No, that was that's, the answer. That's I ultimately who I'm looking for. But I also give a shout out to Felix Ogier Eliassim, who again we talk about. Maybe it's not about Generation Set Sabas anymore so much as the younger guys. And Felix is very much a part of that younger set. And it might be, you know, a, a Felix Holger final or a Felix Center final, or Sitsipas will continue to push forward and continue to be that that top two, top three guy. And again, he's got to build that towards something bigger, in my opinion. It's fine. I'm going to go Demon Hour. Go win this event. You know, you lose to Djokovic at the Australian Open. That's obviously a tough loss, but Novak goes on to win the freaking thing. Go beat one of these guys who you consider yourself a part of this tier group. You know, Felix, Runa, Sinner, Tsitsipas, you know, those are the guys, Medvedev, the guys he grew up with on the junior tour, whose rise he was alongside of during his own rise and ascent on the ATP tour. Play Cressy next. Indoor hardcourt, that's a tough matchup. Dimitrov would be after that. Then you maybe face a Medvedev or a Felix. Go beat those three players in a row. Put yourself back in this tier. You know I think this is a big gear for Demon Hour if he wants to be considered an upper echelon guy moving forward and not just a 15 to 25, which, by the way, is a hell of a career. But, you know, again, we are, what is Alex Demon Hour's ceiling? I'm still not 1,000% sure. Do you he's think he's inspired by Karen Hatchinov's back-to-back Grand Slam That's semifinal. what I'm saying. He's like, I could do that. Yeah, he's like, that's me. Um, and so <laughs> My I evil do. twin. <laughs> exactly. I do. I look at that event in Rotterdam. You want to give me a pick? Who's winning it? I mean, am I going to pick the top seed for both of them? That would be sort of boring. I'll go with Felix. I feel like I've picked against Felix quite often in in my own career, and he's starting to win titles now, and this sort of seems like the kind of uh, tournament that he'll maybe take home, and then it becomes about the slams for him. But I think he's got a good shot at winning this one. I like it. All right. Well, then again, we'll go a little quicker through these next two because I know it's your flu game here. Let's go to Delray Beach next. Fritz, your one seed. Tommy Paul, the two. Uh, obviously, you've got guys like J.J. Wolf, who, by the way, quietly 23 and 13 since the start of the City Open last year. He's just so clearly a top 50 player, especially on hard courts and Wolf right now sitting at 39. That serve forehand combination. It's always been elite, dating back to his Kalamazoo finals days, dating back to his Ohio State All-American days, and now the whole world gets to enjoy it looking elsewhere uh, in this draw. You know, Shapovalov coming off of a tough loss to Wooey Bing in Dallas. Obviously, it aged a little better as the week progressed. I want to see Shapo have a good year here, bounce back strong. I mean, Kesmanovic here trying to defend some points from the start of last year, hold his Remember Mjolnir Kesmanovic, everybody? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's a good draw. Uh, lots to be intrigued about, David. What catches your eye? I mean, obviously, yeah, the continued descent of J.J. Wolf. very impressed by him. I mean, just uh, I'll go back to when I saw him in qualies, you know, playing in front of nobody in 2021 when there was no fans on site and just the racket head speed was mm-hmm. just breathtaking. And then what he was able to do again this year at the U.S. Open, you know, getting to the, I guess the third round he played mm-hmm. Curios um, mm-hmm. and just has been able to carry that form. And now he is one of the top American guys sort of out of seemingly out of nowhere, but certainly of the squad of them he has the most obvious weapons in my opinion so the fact that he's finally pulling it all together is feels overdue um you want to see how fritz and and paul hold up you know it's it's really this really feels like the american derby for all the talk we've been doing about the future of american men's tennis we're seeing a lot of them um on display i'm guessing that the uh, ben shelton loss was your uh your your wish upon misfortune in response to no, uh, I, I, you I, being winning the title last week in, in Dallas. No, <laughs> they, I, uh, what what must go up must come down. <laughs> no, I uh, I liked Giron. I mean, in that match, I just thought he had the physicality to match. My big thing here is Tommy this week because you look at his draw. There's not a single player with a weapon who you feel like is going to just 
completely overwhelm Tommy. And if he wants to be that consistent top 25 guy that he's looked like for six months now, go make the final of this event. You know, again, grind down Kudla, Elbot, Vukic, Pekotic, Kesmanovic, Giron. None of those guys have something to overwhelm you with. If Tommy is locked in, he should be in the final of this event. He makes the final of this event. He'll become a top 20 guy in the live rankings. And I just think for him, like, that's where he should be. And so I want to see him be top 20 going into the sunshine swing, be top 20 going into the clay court season. So you're not just getting into all the big clay events. You might even be seated at those big clay events, really position yourself well for the French Open before, again, back half of the year. He's just got a bunch of different results to defend. I want to see Tommy go make a final, capitalize on his recent form, recent success. And then, yeah, to your point, that's a jam-packed top half, like Chapeau, Wolf, Fritz, Mo Gomez are two guys who are just going to physically work you. Mackie McDonald, keep your eye on as well. Obviously got a good win over Nishioka today. It's fun, Delray uh, tournament. Give me a pick, DK. Right, maybe the cold talking, but I honestly did not remember that Tommy Paul made the Australian Open semifinals. <laughs> <laughs> he had a good, had a good start to the season. Yeah. What do you know? the other, I mean, it, you know, depending on how you look at the draw, it certainly wasn't the the crazy. I mean, obviously, but he beat ben everyone Sh- he was supposed to be. And I'm he beat Ben Shelton, so I'm sure that yeah. gives him a lot of like extra. It's it's, it's retroactive points when there he's number go. one in the world. Yeah, yeah. He, that was his first his first real top ten win was yeah, the Open. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny because I mean, with Paul ascending, with Wolf ascending. Fritz kind of feels like old news a little bit. Like it just feels like we were looking at him, you know, last summer to really be that guy to, you know, uh, me, I, I get bored very easily and I get impatient very easily. I mean, if you're not, if you're not, what do you, what have you done for me lately is my opinion a lot of times with these tennis players. So, and maybe it's the old age too. Now, now entering my, my, my late forties. So that I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, I just, I don't want to, to that end because I don't want to, and I'm not diminishing with Fritz's and I still think very highly of Taylor who joined Gil and I to talk about his breakpoint experience. You can go and maybe to listening to this right podcast now. and having me tell, call him old news. I'm sorry, Taylor. I didn't mean well, it like that. No, just to that end. I just mean like, I, we talked about this all December, like, it's really hard to duplicate a top 10 season and a lot of things have to break right for Taylor this year if he wants to do that versus guys like Ben who has so few points to defend, JJ, so few points to defend. That was the argument I was making all December. Um, Go listen to the top 10 projections pod that I did with Ben at the end of the month. Um, No, I mean, again, it's manifests itself here. Fritz is the guy. Go win this event as well. I think it's a really fun draw in Delray. It's one you keep your eye on, certainly. Last but not least, I know you have your eye on Carlos Alcaraz's return in Buenos Aires, one of a couple of storylines for us to follow. Here's the crazy thing to say out loud, and I was looking at this. You know, we haven't seen Alcaraz play since Paris last year. It's been three full months since Carlos Alcaraz has suited up on the ATP Tour. It feels like that long. Like, I'm excited to see him back in action. He takes on Laszlo Jura later tonight. Um, I mean, look, I think another interesting wrinkle, Cam Norrie makes the decision to go play the clay courts. He's like, you know, I don't need Delray. I've done that. I'm not going to go play indoor hard courts Rotterdam. He wants to get some reps on the clay going into, again, a, a clay court stretch where compared to the other stretches of the calendar, he hasn't had that unequivocal top 15 success. I love this scheduling decision from Cam. Um I think this is a fun event. What are you watching? I got a crazy question for you. Okay. Is Carlos Alcaraz the ATP Tours Bianca Andreescu? 
<laughs> no. Because I was thinking it's have, it has been a while since we've seen Carl Zacharias. Who who regularly took time off tour in between winning big <laughs> titles and and rising up the rankings? It was our very own Bianca Andreescu. She did it first, ladies and gentlemen. She was a trendsetter, the influencer to Alcaraz's influence. Um, I'm excited to see Alcaraz come back. I feel like, you know, he's been such, there's been an Alcaraz sized hole in the men's game since he stopped playing. I mean, really it allowed Djokovic. I don't want to say, I don't know. God, I, <laughs> I hear the pitchforks outside my apartment. <laughs> I'm not, not real. Not necessarily. I didn't allow him to certainly allowed him to step in back into the role unequivocally as the game's best player. I mean, it was starting to become a bit of a question. I mean, Alcaraz was very much number one with a bullet based on the 12 months of 2022, what, what we thought was going to be 12 months of 2022. Obviously, the season ended for Alcaraz earlier than we expected and has started later than we hoped. Um, so, I mean, based on the field in the men's game right now, anyone who could take it to your Rafa's and Novak's, you want to see playing as often as possible because you want to see those big matches and you want to perhaps see, you know, some parity at the top of the men's game. And without Alcaraz, it really things become a much simpler. Uh, analyzing the men's game becomes a lot simpler. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think that's a very fair point. Now, I am still fascinated to find out who will ultimately get, um, you know, who will ultimately step up in this stretch of the calendar. And I think Alcaraz has earned that benefit of the doubt. He also has a healthy amount of points to defend, right? Coming up here, Indian Wells, Miami, back to back, where obviously semifinals champion last year. Um, it's a big cash of points. I'm not worried, though, because I think he stayed out of Australia, obviously got banged up uh, in the offseason. I think this is all preventative. I think they're all taking the big picture look. And I think for Alcaraz, he would have come back earlier. And like he just has that personality, right, where you feel like he's always on court. When you see the videos that have emerged for him over the past few months, it's still him training or him getting ready, getting back in shape. And like, do I think he'll be a little match rusty? Certainly. Am I worried about his form in the immediate future? No, I'm really not. And I think this, you know, for him, putting the fish back in the water, he's back on the red clay courts where he's always been so comfortable. I think he'll be ready for this week. I think there's some really fun matchups. Team looked really good in his first match against Mulchan. Again, Musetti coming off of a really good 2022 season. Is he another young guy ready to make that top 20 leap or top 15 leap, I should say? I don't know. Give me a pick. Buenos Aires. Who you got? Diego Schwartzman. No, just I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, <laughs> poor Diego. He made the final last year. So this is, it's one more knock potentially in his ranking if he's, if he doesn't make it deep at this event. But, um, I mean, feels like, again, it feels like Alvarez are bust here. I mean, it feels like you almost expect him to time if he is as healthy as we hope he is. You, there's really no one perhaps standing in his way between here and the title. So you would think that he, has less rust than the field has chances of beating him. If that makes sense. Sure. <laughs> um, yes. I think he's my pick to, to win. I would certainly like to see him really start the season off um, in somewhat dominant fashion. I mean, just going back to the practicing and everything, certainly the injury was bad enough that he couldn't play a slam. I, I would imagine if he was at least even 50, 50, 60%, he would have given it a go. I mean, but, and then the fact that there were two different injuries, what helped, what took him out of the ATP finals, then we took him out of Australia you wonder what's going on in terms of conditioning and and how he's managing the practices with match play and everything like that. You want to see, yes, prevention, but preventative measures in terms of scheduling. We also want to see prevention and preparation. So I, I hope that they've figured out all the kinks and we won't see any more large gaps in Alcaraz's schedule that are 
injury imposed and take him out of big tournaments. Yeah, very well said. Now, just for what it's worth to offer this number for all of our fans at home listening, according to Tennis Abstractor right now, Cam Norrie, 31.2% chance of winning the event in Buenos Aires. He's the favorite over Alcaraz, who's at 175 Retroactively, Doha, Sviantec now 57% chance, uh, favorite according to Tennis Abstract. Pagula next at 14.7. Over in Rotterdam, it's Holger Runa, 20.6% chance. But that's because Sinner and Tsitsipas face one another next. The winner of that one will almost assuredly be the favorite. And then in Delray Beach, Fritz right now 29.9%. Tommy Paul 28%. Not that far behind uh, for what it's worth. With all that in mind, DK, again, it's a very fun week of action across the professional tennis world. I know you guys are rocking and rolling over at tennis.com. What can all of us expect from you guys over this next, not just week, but during this month stretch? Well, we've very, we've very much gotten on the uh, Mattia Pekatic train. We've been covering okay. that uh, story, and I think we're going to get another one, perhaps, if he was to uh, to win his match tonight. I think that's really an inspiring one that we uh, we didn't talk enough about today on this podcast. The fact sure. that well, give me two minutes because I, I uh, read the piece. He's a college I player. It. I mean, I, you, here, take ninety minutes. Talk about. It. I feel like you probably saw this <laughs> coming before any of any of us did. Had a really good senior year at Princeton. Let me tell you that many of you. Well, the real is there any other kind of year at Princeton though? Well, (laughs) (laughs) let me tell you. Uh, they've have do you know anything about Daria Freeman? I don't know. Then we'll save the 30 minutes for a different time. Yes, Pakotic was exceptional last night against Sock. And, um, again, what a phenomenal story! I thought you guys did a a fantastic piece, spotlight on it, and everyone should go read it over at tennis.com. And anytime David Kane writes a piece, you know, you're going to see that retweet from me. It wasn't my story though. It was Pete Boto. It's just very just, true. No, no, no. That I know. I'm just saying in general, more broadly. Anytime DK, yes, no, no, I, I welcome you know, retweets. Yes, we will run to it. But of course, again, with all of that in mind, folks, that's your look at this week on the ATP and WTA tours. Of course, a ton of action happening at other levels, including the college level, where it's part two of our national indoor coverage, the men's championships this weekend in Chicago. We'll have coverage first ball to last on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel starting Friday, 9 a.m. Central Time. Myself. Mike Cation steering the ship. By the way, North Carolina, seventh national indoor title in the past 11 years. They've made 10 finals in the past 11 years at that event as well. Is that a dynasty in your mind, DK? Sort of in the way that uh, the Washington Castles had a dynasty going over at World Team Tennis. <laughs> there it is. That's that's My, the insight we were looking for. And I, I say that with love as someone who spent two very fruitful seasons working for Team Tennis. So, oh, so yeah. it's a high compliment. It felt like love. Well, with all of that said, of course, for the fantastic David Kane, who, as always, does a fantastic job joining on this show. For our super producer, Danny Westhoff, who has a f- of an editing job to do day in, day out, making all of our content possible. For, of course, our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. And from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you, as always, my friend. Et das